In Exodus 34, the Lord declares himself after he reveals to Moses his glory and says this about himself in Exodus 34 in the middle of verse 6. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It is this Lord, this Yahweh, the covenantal God of all of God's people that we praise this morning. Please be seated so we can pray to this covenantal Yahweh, our Lord. Please bow with me. Father, truly, I don't think we understand and sometimes even grasp the fact that at your name, mountains shake and the earth could crumble. And yet, even as powerful and as mighty as you are, as you declare your name before your people, there's a few things that you want to be known by. And there's a few reasons because of your name and because of what you want to be known by for why you are worthy of our praise. And so, Father, we come to you this morning as a body, as a group of believers, declaring to you that we believe in these things and want to praise you for them. And we want to praise you because you are merciful and gracious. Lord, you show pardon where there should have been punishment. You show love where there should have been only condemnation. God, we praise you because you're also slow to anger. Lord, you don't deal with us in the way that we deserve, but ultimately have dealt with us in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, you're abounding in love, and you've shown that love, not only by sending Christ to be the atoning sacrifice of our sins, but by raising him up from the dead so that we might have a united relationship with you. God, you're not just abounding in love. You're not just slow to anger. You're not just gracious and merciful. You're also forgiving. Lord, you tell us in your word that from the east to the west, that is how far you cast our sins and do not remember them. Father, we are thankful and rejoice in the fact that you forgive us all our iniquity when we come to Jesus in faith. But Lord, we also thank you that you are just, that you have dealt with sin, and that you've dealt with evil. And Lord, just as Moses said here, as he recorded as you saying that you will by no means clear the guilty and that you will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Father, we know and we can rest in that you will take care of the problem of evil finally and once and forevermore in a future day. Father, we praise you for all these things that you are, for the way that you've treated us despite the fact that at times we have not loved you and have not praised you in a manner that is worthy of your name. And yet, you were still merciful and gracious. You're still slow to anger. You still abound in love for us. You still forgive us. And you still deal with us justly because you've ultimately dealt with us in the person of Jesus Christ. So Father, we praise you this morning because your name is the only one that is worthy to be praised because you are the only one that has ultimately dealt with us in a way that is loving and is perfect. 
God, we rejoice in that this morning. And Lord, because of all these things and because of who you are, this is why we can bring petitions before you this morning. This is why we bring up various things within this church during this prayer. And so, Lord, we do bring up a couple of things that concern our church and concern the churches that we belong to. So, Father, this morning we pray, first of all, for our search committee. Father, we thank you that you have seen sovereignly fit that we would find ourselves in a time of a pastoral search. And so, Father, we ask that you would be with our search committee. Be with the elders, the deacons, and the members that make up that search committee. And, Father, we pray that you would give them clarity of mind, that you would give them unity. And ultimately, Father, as they try to determine and prayerfully discern who you might be calling here, Father, we ask that you would give them great wisdom. Father, you tell us in your word that we have not because we ask not. So, Lord, we pray that you would give them much wisdom and that you would give them much discernment as they undertake this process. And, Lord, as we think about uh, having not because we ask not, Father, we ask that you would give us a senior pastor, a lead pastor here soon. But, Father, we, in the meantime, pray that for South Kenyon that we would trust in you and that we would wait And, Lord, that we would ultimately know that you've already ordained and have established who that next man might be and who that person is going to be to be the one amongst equals, amongst the elder board and the other pastors. You've already determined who is going to lead this congregation, Lord willing, into further health and to further growth. Father, we pray that whoever you call here might ultimately lead us, your people, into more Christ-likeness. So, Father, in the meantime, we pray that you would create a burning desire for your people here at South Canyon Baptist Church in the heart of that man. And pray that in your due time, Lord, in your sovereign time, and in your loving time, you would reveal who that person is. So, Father, for us as a church, keep us patient in that time. Keep us with our eyes fixed on you, knowing that while we wait on an under-shepherd, we have a great shepherd that is never leaving us, never forsaking us, and always with us and holding our right hand. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And Father, we thank you also for the many churches in this area that proclaim the same Jesus that we praise and the same God that we praise this morning. And Father, we want to specifically thank you for the churches that make up the Dakota Baptist Convention. Father, we're thankful that there are so many different churches within South and North Dakota that make up this convention of churches that get to swim in the same stream and get to link arms and to proclaim your gospel in a place that so desperately needs it. Father, I'm thankful that just this last weekend, we were able to conduct business with the Dakota Baptist Convention and that decisions were made and budgets were set and calendars were set so that you might be proclaimed. So Father, help us as a church be able to link arms with our brothers and sisters in these other churches. And Father, we pray for the pastors of these other churches that they would preach the truth, that they would preach your word, that they would proclaim the gospel. And Lord, in your kindness, we pray that for whatever reason, that you would make great revival happen within the Dakotas. We ask, Lord, that through the efforts of the churches joined together, that you might save many unto the glory of Jesus. God, we ask a big thing, be it we know you are a big God and know that It's whenever brothers dwell in unity that we see things work. So, Father, I pray that our focus would be the gospel and our eyes would be set on Jesus as a convention of churches within North and South Dakota. Father, we not only pray for churches in our area, but from time to time we pray for churches across the world. And so this morning, Father, I want to pray for a specific church within a specific city in Central Asia. Father, we thank you for this city and we thank you for this church in Central Asia. And we thank you that, Lord 
that you might be creating a potential partnership with them in us. And Father, we pray that you might work out a way that we would be able to get to them and be able to link arms with them and be able to proclaim the gospel in that area that they're in. Father, we're thankful that you've even potentially set up a supported worker of ours to be able to join this local church. And so, Father, we pray that you would strengthen that supported worker, that you would strengthen the pastor of that church so that they may be able to declare the gospel in a place that is less than 3% Christian. Father, we pray that we would see great revival through the efforts that's going on in this country in Central Asia. Father, they need Jesus. And Father, I pray that many of us might prayerfully consider what it might look like for us to, with open hands, go and be sent for the sake of the gospel in this country in Central Asia. Father, we pray that in your mercy, you would do that for our congregation. God, as we turn back to ourselves, I pray that your word would be effective. God, your word says that it will not return void. God, in that we can preach and we can proclaim all the truth in the world. But, Father, we realize that unless the Lord raises the house, its builders build in vain. So, Father, I pray that this morning you would build the house, that your Holy Spirit would go before me, that it would go before us, that we would be able to be convicted, to be cut to the heart by your word. And ultimately, God, that you might produce in us a crop 30, 60, and 100-fold because of your word. God, let our hearts be like good soil. Don't let it be like rocky or hard or weedy soil. But God, let it be good soil that's churned up by your Holy Spirit. Father, be with us this morning. Be with us as your word is proclaimed and preached. And ultimately, be with us as we are sent from here as well. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I realize uh, this isn't the person that you expected to see this morning, and that's okay. I'm glad that uh, I'm still getting the honor and privilege to preach God's word with you all. So uh, with that said, why don't we take a little pause from the book of Philippians and turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And I believe that scripture reference is inside your bulletin. And you can turn to Mark chapter 9, and we will be beginning in verse 14 of Mark 9. And while you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. It's on page 844, by the way. While you're turning there, I want to ask a question, and I need some audience participation. So I know we're Baptists, and we don't often raise our hands, but I'm going to ask that you raise your hands this morning. Who here has ever been lost on a trip, ever? If you have your hand down, come on, really? I'm not trying to pick a fight or anything, but if I had to guess, if you've been lost on a trip, it's probably happened because of a male, right? Because of a, of a man. Uh, I'm not trying to pick a fight or anything, but I know at some point in time, even with me, um, though I, I, I tried to rack my brain when this could have happened to me, uh, but I know at some point in time I made a wrong turn thinking it was absolutely right. Uh, and unfortunately, that's just a plague that all of us uh, in the male species have. But it's scientifically proven that men get lost on the road more often than women. It's scientifically proven, so don't even try to deny it, fellas. And the primary, primary reason for that is, as backed up by study, is that men are not just reluctant, but they refuse, absolutely refuse, they are stiff-necked in this way, to go outside of their guidance system or the thing that they've created to help them get from point A to point B. And obviously, as a result, they end up in the wrong place, but they insist 
that they know exactly what they're doing and exactly where they're going. And ladies, just as a warning, don't even suggest us, don't even suggest to us if we should ask for directions or pull over or call somebody. Don't even suggest doing that because, God forbid, we'd rather swim in Rapid Creek than ask for help. I think, I think there's probably something like that for all of us, male and female alike. There have been times in our lives where, plainly, we just do not know what's good for us. We would rather be self-reliant and in a world of hurt than have the appearance of needing to ask for any guidance or any help. Well, in our passage in Mark 9, I think we're going to find that Jesus is challenging us in that specific attitude. And I think Mark is asking us as readers, as we read this gospel account this morning, where do we go when we need real help? Where do we go spiritually, physically, emotionally when we need help? Friends, where do we go? And our answers to those questions ultimately reveals where we put our trust in and where we place our faith in. So with that said, why don't we begin reading in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. Follow along with me as I read God's word. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he, being Jesus, answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord, and praise, God, praise be to God for it. I think the main idea of this text is this. We can go to Jesus. We can go to Jesus. And specifically, within that main idea, we can go to Jesus in our faithlessness, in our unbelief, and in prayer. And that's what we want to explore this morning, why we can go to Jesus. And we're going to do that, breaking down that main idea in three different points, why we can go to Jesus. We go to Jesus in our faithlessness, we go to Jesus in our unbelief, and we go to Jesus in prayer. 
So as we work through these points and through this passage, my hope is that you will see why we can go to Jesus. Because more than likely, we all have been or will be in one of these situations or in one of these temperaments. Wondering where should we go whenever life circumstances take us off of our feet. And when those times come, I pray, and my hope is that it will be an instinct for you to go to Jesus. That's the plan. That's the goal for us this morning, to go to Jesus. And Lord willing, you'll also have the surety of knowing why you can go to Jesus. So why don't we begin with that first point, go to Jesus in your faithlessness. And we're going to find that in verses 14 through 19. So before this passage that I just read, a couple of monumental things have happened in the ministry and the life of Jesus. Peter, a man, one of his disciples, confesses him as the Christ, as the Messiah, the one that God's people have been waiting for, the one that will save and lead God's people. Jesus then predicts his death, and Peter, he does not like that at all. He ends up taking Jesus, the Son of God, the very one that he called the Christ, and he ends up rebuking him and saying, hey, not that way. And Jesus tells Peter and tells the other disciples plainly that if they are going to follow him, if they truly believe in him as the Christ, there is a path that they must take. And that path is a road of self-denial and taking up your cross and even dying to your very self for the sake of following him, but gaining everything. And it's not just denying yourself, it's taking up that cross daily. It's saying, I am going to put Jesus' instincts, I'm going to put Jesus' preferences before my very own. And then in verses 2 through 13, Jesus ends up taking Peter, James, and John, and we're all a little surprised. Peter? Really? He just rebuked you and you're going to take him? He still does. And he takes these three with him, and he takes them up a mountain, and Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. And if you don't know what the word transfigured means, that's fine. Ultimately, what that means is Jesus is in that moment transformed into the radiant glory that he is right now, where he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he's also transformed into the image of what we will one day see whenever he comes back for those who have placed their faith in him. They get to see a preview of Jesus, the authoritative and exalted king. And God the Father, in this time, he speaks in a cloud and he says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. I could go on and on about Jesus' transfiguration, and truthfully, I probably should spend a little bit more time on this event, but for the sake of time, we don't have time to get into all the details of it. But what we need to know is that if in the section with Peter where he confesses him as Christ, that is a man, a person of earth, explaining, yes, this is the Christ. And then in the transfiguration, it is God declaring, yes, this is the Christ, this is the the Son of God, God the Son incarnate, the one that you should be listening to, the one that you should be following. Up to this point, the transfiguration was the most important and most valuable thing that has happened in the life of Jesus and in his ministry. And now, coming down from the mountain, from such a monumental event, life happens. Life hits Jesus and those three disciples really fast. There's some sort of commotion going on with the crowd and the scribes. And in the book of Mark, we realize that the scribes, they are not the biggest fans of of Jesus. In every encounter, it's either him or it's either them or the Pharisees that are getting on to Jesus saying, why are you doing that? Why are you not washing your hands this way? Why do your disciples do this? Why are you teaching this? Blasphemy. Up to this point, always constant tension from the scribes. 
And it should not surprise us that we find them in the middle of an argument with a crowd, and especially a crowd with Jesus' disciples in it as well. And what we read is simply that there's an argument going on between the scribes and the disciples about why the disciples could not cast out this unclean spirit from this little boy. This event of casting out demons, getting rid of unclean spirits, this is not a unique event in the ministry of Jesus. Up to this point in Mark, we've seen this many a time, and as my youth students know, this has happened over and over and over again, and ultimately is showing that Jesus has the final authority and has the power of God in himself. But obviously, the thing that stands out within these first few verses is Jesus' response whenever the Father explains what's been going on with his son and what's been going on with this unclean spirit. Jesus says in verse 19, and, and truthfully, it's a little shocking, he says, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. What? What exactly is Jesus trying to get at here? Is, is he annoyed? Is he annoyed that Jesus has to go again and do another miracle? Is, is he just, just put out because he has to exercise this authority, this power that has always resided in him? Is Jesus acting unreasonable? Well, I think upon further inspection that no, Jesus is, he's not fed up and he's not mad at the crowd. He's not annoyed with what he has to be doing. But I do believe he's exasperated and he's weary. He's tired and he's frustrated. Even Jesus got frustrated of the general faithlessness of those that he's encountered. Think about this with me here for a second. At this point in Mark, Jesus has casted out many a demon, many an unclean spirit. And he's done that many times in front of crowds. And not only that, he's been preaching the gospel and making known the gospel of the kingdom, how people can enter into the kingdom of God. And not only that, he's also performed miracles. He's fed up to this point about roughly 10,000 people. And he's performed miracles. He's told the sea to calm down. He's walked on water. He's done all of these amazing things, and he's performed miracles to such a point where he's had to escape from towns because crowds are pressing in around him, wanting them to be healed. Can you imagine that kind of pressure? He's performing these miracles. He's speaking all of these true things. He's making himself known as the Christ, the Son of God, and yet the scribes and the people and what we find in our text this morning, even his disciples don't believe. Can you imagine how discouraging that would be? And we're not talking just, this has only been a few days of ministry, only a few weeks. Jesus was, was doing this coming up on three years. Three years of ministry like this, where nobody was believing in who he was. And for his disciples, he's commissioned them. He's commissioned them to proclaim the gospel. And he's given them authority. We find that in Mark 6 and Matthew 10. To go and preach in his name. And to go and cast out demons in his name. To go and heal in his name. But for whatever reason, at this point, they think they can handle it themselves. Over and over and over again, what we find in Mark's gospel is opportunities for many people to place their faith in Jesus and who he is, and who he is as the Christ and as God's Son. And yet, repeatedly, what we find over 
and over and over again is a response of faithlessness. In this moment, right after such a high point, right after the transfiguration, where he's displayed in all of his authority, all of his glory, Jesus becomes exhausted. He becomes exasperated with a faithless response. He's tired. You see, friends, in every way, Jesus was faithful in his earthly ministry. He walked with God perfectly. Each day he was obedient to God and he relied on the Father fully. And if you recall, there's even a point at the beginning of his ministry where he is tempted to the nth degree by Satan, by the devil himself. And he's given all the opportunity to turn away from God, to not be the commissioned Christ that he was meant to be. And yet, he was faithful. Jesus is faithful. And he's always been faithful up to this point as well. In many ways, Mark, in his gospel accounts, he paints a picture of Jesus in his account of this decisive and clear faithfulness. And that's always found in the person of Jesus. Jesus is always faithful. And in Mark's account, he's always contrasting that with the response of faithlessness. And that's even coming from those who call him Lord and Master. He's exhausted. He's tired of the response of faithlessness. You see, to put it another way, Jesus' ministry would have been a lot like this. It would have been like walking in one direction, and yet everybody else walking in the opposite direction, pushing against him, shoving him, trying to get him to turn around. And yet he did not. He was faithful from beginning to end. But can you imagine the constant pressure of having to swim upstream, having to go against the crowd, always being faithful and always met with faithlessness? Can you imagine that kind of pressure? And I think as we see evidence by the latter half of this verse, where he says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you? He still remains faithful. Look at how he responds. He responds so sweetly in that verse. He says, bring the boy to me, or bring me to him. Jesus did not disregard the father. He did not disregard his little son, who was obviously hurting. No, despite all the faithlessness he saw, Jesus remained faithful. Even coming after down the mountain, Jesus remained faithful and entered into the fray of the faithlessness of this generation, of the people that could not just get it. Friends, I think we find the first reason why we can go to Jesus in our faithlessness. We can go to Jesus because he is faithful. Jesus is faithful. For all of us here, we were and perhaps still are like the people who are described in these verses that we read. We are faithless, completely unbelieving to who Jesus is and why he came. But even then, but even knowing lacking our faith, Jesus still came so that we might be brought into his family. Jesus became faithful for us so that we might put our trust in him, what he has done, what he has done on the cross, how he was resurrected. He has come to be faithful to the nth degree, to the uttermost, as the writer of Hebrews says, so that we might be brought in to his faith family. Friends, you can go to Jesus this morning because he is faithful. I don't know where many of you are at, and I know some of you where you're at spiritually, but I see a lot of new faces this morning. And one thing I would want you to consider 
is that if you don't know who Jesus is and you don't know whether or not you should put your faith in him, I want you to consider how many times have you acted in a place of faithlessness? Friend, do you know that God, despite knowing your faithlessness in him, still sent himself in the person of Jesus to die for you, to be the living sacrifice for you? Friend, turn and trust in Jesus. Turn and trust in his faithfulness for you. There's nothing you have to do. You just simply go to Jesus. Go to Jesus in your faithlessness. And it's because of Jesus' faithfulness that we can also go to him when our faith is weak, when it's teetering. Which brings us to our second point. Go to Jesus in your unbelief. Go to Jesus in your unbelief. I think we find this in the next set of verses here in verses 20 through 27. And in these verses, they become much more focused in on Jesus and this conversation that he has with the father of this, of this poor little boy. And as we find the situation for the boy, it is utterly dire. It is terrible. Apparently, this boy has been dealing with these fits for his whole life. He's been dealing with an unclean spirit. Can you imagine that? From the time he was born, he has been dealing with a demonic thing in his body, oppressing him, invading him. And the sole purpose of this demon, of this spirit, is to destroy the boy. As the father described it, it's tried many times to cast him into the fire and to put him into the water. Because every work of our enemy, every work of Satan is meant to do that. It is to destroy the image of God. From the time he was a very small baby, this has been going on. Can you imagine being put in that kind of situation as a parent? Going along, having a seemingly normal day. Then out of nowhere, your sweet child is convulsing shaking so violently and so uncontrollably that all you can do is hope that you can protect them in some small way, knowing that really there's nothing you can do. Can you imagine that as a parent? Perhaps some of you have been there. Maybe it's not with a child. Maybe it's with a friend or a loved one. Perhaps some of you are there right now. Maybe even some of you have lost a child in some uncontrollable way that was out of your hands. You can imagine the utter hurt in the heart of this father, feeling so desperate and feeling so scared of what's going on in his little child's life. Can you imagine that? And more than likely, this father, he's gone at lengths to try to help this boy, to try to help his little child. But nothing has happened. Nothing has worked. More than likely, he's probably even gone outside of the realm of his own Jewish faith to try to make this happen. And nothing's worked to no avail. But he's heard of this Jesus guy. And this Jesus guy, he can heal. So he he goes with his son to find Jesus. He heard that Jesus is in the next town. And he goes in the next town and he finds Jesus' disciples and he says, Can you please heal my boy? And the disciples say, Hey, sorry, he's not with us at this time, but hey, let us try. And he's absolutely open to that. He's so desperate that he's like, Maybe just even his disciples can heal my son, can heal my boy. And they try. They attempt. And they fail. And further despair creeps in. Further fear creeps into this father's heart. Is there anything that can be done? Then Jesus hits the scene. 
And the father, he tells the story to Jesus. This is what's been going on in his life. And, and for whatever reason, that's, that's followed by this sharp response by Jesus. But it doesn't matter. And Jesus says, take me to this boy. Take me to your son. And of course, the father takes him. And as soon as Jesus approaches the boy, he convulses. He goes into this uncontrollable fit. And the father asks him, how long has this been going on? And the father, just desperate in tears, says, it's been going on his whole life. And then Jesus asks him for more information. And this despairing father, he makes one last plea. And we find this in verse 22. I want you to read along with me. He says in verse 22, But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Personally, this is one of my favorite interactions that we find in all of the gospel accounts. And truthfully, I think the reason that this is one of my favorite things that I read in this gospel account is because I've been where that father is. I've been there. Knowing in my head what I ought to believe, what I ought to know about who Jesus is and what he's come to do and how I can live in that and how I can rest in that. And yet in my heart, not being able to grasp that truth. And I I figure I'm probably not the only one in this room that has ever lived in that tension, that has ever lived with this unspeakable thing, unfortunately, that is taboo in many churches. This kind of tension, this kind of struggle for whatever reason, it has a name, and and most of the time it's not even whispered in churches. But this tension, this, this dread, this, this uncomfortability that many times we see Christians entering in, this is called doubt. And I think it's important that we talk about doubt this morning. I think it's important that we talk about a topic like doubt in a setting like this. Why? Well, because according to a Barner research, two out of every three Christians have struggled with doubt or are currently struggling with doubt. If you can think about it, that means two people to your left or two people to your right are more than likely struggling with whether or not Jesus is who he says he is and whether or not their faith is worth holding on to. There are those of us today, right now, that are struggling with doubt. And like this poor father, many of our doubts are even seemingly justified. It's the loss of a loved one. It's the fear of an unknown diagnosis or the diagnosis that has come that we did not expect. It's a relationship that we thought would work out but has crashed. Friends, doubt is very real and it comes in many forms. But what we find, but even more real, is what we ought to do when and if those doubts creep in. What do we do when unbelief becomes the norm? What do we do? Where do we go? What we find in our passage this morning and what we need to hear is we go to Jesus. 
We go to Jesus. We go to Jesus because he has power to overcome our unbelief. We can go to Jesus because he is the only one who can help us in our unbelief. We go to him and ask and say, help my unbelief. I can hear some of you asking in your head, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. I need to have it all together. Or Doesn't that mean I'm testing Jesus in some way? Don't I just need to get some counseling? Don't I need to do this or that? No. Go to Jesus. We come to him in all of our brokenness, in all of our doubt, and we cry to him and we say, Jesus, I am doubting. I'm hurting. I'm, I'm in a place of unbelievable guilt. I'm in a place of unbelievable not knowing whether or not you're good or if you are who you say you are. I need your help. Help my unbelief. We can come to Jesus, friends, even in our most broken state. As one commentator puts it, he says, divine ability is not the problem. Human belief is. Friend, the end goal in God's providence and in his sovereignty in these circumstances where we find ourselves doubting the goodness of God, doubting whether or not Christ has really come to save us, what we do and what we find is that God perhaps in his loving and tender care puts us in those situations so that we might be totally dependent on him. That is the end goal. Not that you would just struggle, but that you would become more dependent on God. Will we go to Jesus? Will you? Well, why? Why should we go to Jesus? Well, as we see here this morning, we go to Jesus because Jesus is the only one who has power to overcome our unbelief. Friends, you can go to your counselor, you can go to your friends, you can go to your substance of choice, and perhaps maybe for some of us, we can go to that sin that we leave dormant and have never killed to maybe make us feel better in our doubts. But do you see what Jesus is inviting us all to do this morning? We can come to him. And he says to all of us, come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all you who are doubt, and I will show you my power. I will overcome your unbelief. I think this is why we can find this other reason to go to Jesus, because he is so powerful. And Jesus certainly illustrates this power whenever he, with just a few words, casts out this unclean spirit. But yet, the greater thing that happens and the greater miracle that we find is not that Jesus is just simply good at casting out unclean spirits. No, what we find in our text this morning is that Jesus is powerful enough to overcome even your unbelief. Friend, will you go to Jesus in your unbelief? Will you go to him in your doubts? All you have to say to Jesus is, I believe, help my unbelief. Because we can go to Jesus because he is so powerful, we also ought to come to him in prayer, which leads us to our final point. Go to Jesus in prayer, which we find in verses 28 through 29. Read along with me in verse 28 and 29. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. I believe in this sermon, I I think I've left one thing unresolved. What do we do whenever that impossible thing happens to us? Where do we go when that unexpected, totally out of our control thing happens? 
What do we do when there's literally nothing that human hands can do to resolve a situation? What do we do? Where do we go? Well, as Jesus tells us in this verse, we pray. What? We pray? Seriously, Pastor Tanner, I've come here with all of the baggage on my shoulders, I've come here with all of my brokenness, and I've come here with all of my struggling and all my doubts, and you tell me that all I need to do is pray? Jesus said to do it. But let me, let me, let me explain it to you more than just, hey, because Jesus said it, you ought to do it. Let me, let me flesh this out for you, especially within the context that we find this unclean spirit. So, so bear with me real quick, okay? So in this passage, in the context of first century Judaism, there's really not a handbook on how to deal with demonic possession. I did a little research and, and found that oftentimes they would read the Shema or they would read some other scriptures to a person that might be dealing with a demoniac or with an unclean spirit. But really, until Jesus hit the scene, being possessed by a demon was probably as good as a death sentence. And until Jesus gave his disciples the ability to cast out demons in his name as they believe in him as the Christ— there was literally no one that could have helped a demoniac. And on our side of history, we have the benefit of knowing how to deal with spiritual oppression, spiritual possession. We, like the disciples, we can't do anything either, but we simply rely in the name and in the power of Jesus. But in the context of our passage, casting out a demon was impossible. It's like being in that situation where it's stage four cancer. It's like being in that situation where that loved one is on the brink of death. And so, like the disciples, we're puzzled whenever we come to those situations. We're completely at a loss for what, what are we to do? How come, how come we didn't do this? I exercised. I did all these things. I did this. I did that. What do we do? And Jesus replies that there's only one thing you can do. You pray. And I think what Jesus is getting at here is twofold. I think one reason that he tells the disciples this is first because I think he's actually criticizing the disciples. I think he's saying, hey, you actually really didn't believe in me. For whatever reason, they thought that just saying, demon, I tell you to get out in the name of Jesus Christ, wasn't really something that was going to work. They went through the motions, they did all the things, but truly, they didn't believe in the power of Jesus and in his name. They did not think that just saying those things would be enough. But I think on the other hand, what we also find, which kind of coincides with what I just said, is the disciples' lack of faith is evidenced by their perceived control or their perceived ability to work out the situation. They thought they had it all. They thought they could get it done. As one commentator put it, he says it's so eloquent, and I think it's so good. The disciples had been tempted to believe that the gift of casting out unclean spirits that they had received from Jesus was in their control and could be exercised at their disposal. It was a subtle form of unbelief, for it encouraged them to trust in themselves rather than in God. They, being the disciples, had to learn that their previous success in expelling demons provided no guarantee of continued power. Rather, and I want you all to catch this, the power of God must be asked for on each occasion in radical reliance upon his ability alone. Friends, we're invited to go to Jesus in prayer in those impossible situations because Jesus and because God wants us to rely on him. That is the end goal. That's the end goal. The reason we go to God in prayer because there is no power in us and all the power in God. 
And even in those impossible situations, we go to prayer for those things because it's a declaration to our God and to our Savior Jesus and saying, Lord, I can't do this, but I know you can. And even if you don't, I can still come to you and say, help me believe. This is why we go to Jesus in prayer. The goal is dependency, not a best outcome. The goal is dependency in God. I think a passage like this invites us all to make big prayers. I think it invites us all to make prayers so big and so radical that whenever we pray, that the, even just the possibility of us praying those prayers might make somebody blush. I think that's what a passage like this does. And I'm not saying that this is an opportunity to pray to God, oh God, please just give me a million dollars. I want a million dollars. I pray in Jesus' name, amen, give me a million dollars. That's not what it's saying at all. Our prayers still must be aligned to God's will. So maybe you find yourself in a situation where maybe you do need a million dollars, like legitimately need a million dollars. Pray to God for that. I think that invites you to that. But that's not the point, that you just get a million dollars. But I do think what this passage ought to do is cause us to evaluate what the nature of our prayers are like. Friend, do you pray big, radical, earth-moving prayers? Why not? Do you believe your prayers have power? Guess what? They don't, but there's a God that's listening to him that has all the power. And there's a Jesus that's interceding for us at the right hand of the Father that said to us, if we pray and if we have enough faith, we can look at a mountain and say, move from this place to another and it will happen. The goal is dependency. The goal is reliance on God. We come to God in prayer because it is a declaration of saying, God, you got this, not me. What we find here in our passage, because this is what the reality was for this father and for this little boy, the Lord works in the impossible. And he gives grace where there's much darkness. So why not pray big prayers? Pray radical, earth-moving, impossible prayers. For us as a church, I want to invite you to do this with us together. We have opportunities every first and third Sunday, and we have life groups throughout the week that I hope in all those gatherings, we will commit to praying for one another, to praying for our church, to praying for big things to happen in the life of South Canyon Baptist Church. In the morning gathering, I would encourage you, listen to and focus in and pray along with me, especially in the pastoral prayer. Think about it. This country that I couldn't even name, how amazing would it be is if in the tapestry of time, the Lord just in his kindness allowed for a whole group of people that we have been praying for to go to this country in Central Asia, and we saw amazing revival, and instead of just a mere 3% of the population that is Christian now becomes 100%. What if that, what if that happened? What if we truly believed in the power of God so much that we prayed big prayers like that? Friends, I pray that SCBC, that South Kingdom, this little outpost of the kingdom, would pray so much and would pray such big prayers that people that don't usually come here, they think it's a little weird. And I pray, ultimately, too, that we would be known as a church that prays radical, impossible prayers. Wouldn't that be such a neat reputation to have within this community? Yeah, South Canyon Baptist Church. They're the church that prays really weird, impossible prayers. I don't think it's the worst thing to ask. As we conclude, I think the question that I hope you can answer, and I hope that you can answer more confidently, is this. 
Why do I go to Jesus? Why should I go to Jesus? As we've found, we can go to Jesus in anything and in any state we're in. And if we will simply go to him, he will be faithful when we are faithless. He will be powerful enough to overcome our unbelief. And he will answer our prayers when we are completely dependent on him. So with that said, why don't we pray? God, I thank you for your word. And so, Lord, because I'm convicted and need to do this, I pray that, Lord, truly, if there is a single person who does not know who Jesus Christ is and how they can come to him in faith, that they would do that today. Lord, that you would embolden the members of this church and that you would embolden even me to speak the truth of the gospel. And, Father, that you might save any unbelieving person. Father, I pray that even maybe the hardest-hearted person that's in here, that is in here because their friend drugged them here or whatever, I pray that they would come to believe this morning. And Father, I'm praying that because we know that you can do that. All the power is in you and not in us. So Father, help us depend on you and pray big prayers. and Help us ultimately to come to you in everything. What a great joy that we have that we can go to Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.